Dr. Braden Brown is a licensed marriage and family therapist and the VP of Coaching and Counseling at Ampelis, a holistic human performance and mental wellness practice. Braden was a four-year letterman on BYU's football team from 2009 to 2012, where he played in all 52 games of his career and tallied 41 starts at offensive tackle. Following his BYU football career, Dr. Brown was invited to the 2013 NFL Combine and later signed a contract with the St. Louis Rams as an undrafted free agent where he was credited with one NFL season before retiring due to a back injury. Today we get to talk about his transition from sports to psychology and why he pursued a PhD in medical family therapy that led him into his current career. We break down some of the reasons there's a huge stigma with athletes seeking professional help with mental health, specifically male athletes, and why mental health is health and is so vital to their well-being and performance, not just in sports, but also in life. Braden and I talk about some of the guiding principles and values that he teaches in his practice to patients, including the power of mindset, regulating your emotions, and staying in the present. got Dr. Braden Brown in the house today. I'm super excited to interview you today, Braden. And I feel like before we get to who you really are, we have to talk about who I thought you were when I met you, because this is an amazing story. So a few months ago, Neil and I were in Provo, Utah for a business conference, and I came up and almost like bear hug tackled you. Because I thought you were someone else. I thought you were my friend, Christy Miller's husband, Trent Miller, because you are his true doppelganger. Then I was like, hey, don't you remember me? And anyway, I don't remember exactly what happened after that, but it took me a second to realize you were not who I thought you were. So you were not the only person that happened to you at that conference. There was another guy who stopped me dead in my tracks as I was walking up kind of the main Mm -hmm. conference area where they're doing all the keynotes. And he was like, I can't remember who he thought I was, but he said some name and he's like, so-and-so. And And I kind of looked at him and I think he realized like pretty quickly that I wasn't that so-and-so. And And he's like, I thought for sure you were this guy that I played football with at Snow College, but I don't think you're that guy. And I'm like, nope, sorry, not that guy. But I will say. I wonder if it was the same guy. It was not Trent. Oh, it wasn't. So apparently I have a couple of, I'm a doppelganger of a couple of people out there, but that that story. Amazing. I told my wife about it and I was like, yeah, some, this lady came up to me and like, she was convinced I was someone. And it was one of those things where I'm like, is she talking to me or is she talking to someone behind me? Cause that's happened to me before where it's like, like, I know, I, I think I should know this person from high school or my BYU days or something. And I don't remember their names and I just feel like really awkward and really silly about it. And then yeah. I realized you were talking to me and I was like, I'm usually pretty good with faces, but not so much with names. And I'm like, I was trying to place you. <laughs> Didn't realize that you just interviewed the guy the night before. And so I was just kind of like, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not Trent. But uh, and then I told my wife about it later. And I was like, yeah, her name's uh, her name's Corinne. I guess she's like a, a motivational speaker and has like her own podcast. And she's like, Corinne Stoko. And I was like, maybe she's like, wait, you met Corinne Stoko? And she was like, oh, stoked about it because she knows all about you and oh that's nice but that's really funny yeah so then our friendship started and I started following you on Instagram and just have been inspired ever since by all the goodness that you put out but let's start actually before I thought you were the doppelganger and just tell everybody who you are and 
what you're up to, and then kind of get into your story that's really unique and cool. Who am I? That is a question that I've struggled with uh, in, in varying, varying degrees and kind of uh, to greater extents than others throughout my life. But first and foremost, I am a, a husband to a warrior of a woman. And when I first married her, I, I referred to her as my better three-fourths, but I quickly learned that it's more <laughs> like seven-eighths and more like nine at nine-tenths. But my wife, Rachel, she is a, she's an absolute warrior. You guys kind of share a similar pregnancy experience. And we talked about that a little bit offline, yeah. but just a truly remarkable human being. I wouldn't be who I am or where I am today if it wasn't for her. So first and foremost, I'm Rachel's husband. And then I'm a, a father of two wonderful, unique, very opposite, sometimes very frustrating boy-girl twins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then we have a little caboose, Chloe, who just turned one just a few weeks ago. Aww. And then outside of being a husband and a father, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I didn't start off as kind of wanting to go into the mental health world. And I don't know if we're going to get into this a little bit later, but I was a, a three-sport athlete my whole life. Athletics was a huge part of my my childhood and adolescence. And Okay, I, I didn't know three sports because I, I can see the BYU football jersey. Above your head, like a halo. <laughs> yeah, go Cougs. I, I, I didn't intend to make this office space just a shrine to me, but I thought just filling it with some of the the cool moments and, and memories that I was able to accumulate over the years at BYU. Yeah. So yeah, I played football, basketball, baseball all through high school. Wow. And then ended up playing at BYU for four years and then kind of went on after that. We can talk a little bit more about that later. But so after my football career... I was kind of lost in life. And I was telling you about this earlier. I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought maybe I was going to coach football because that's something that I always thought that I might do because it was such a huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. And then Coach Mendenhall, who was my head coach at BYU and his Coach Mendenhall wisdom suggested that I reach out to a couple of the current graduate assistants to make sure it's something that I really wanted to do. And I'm so grateful that he had me do that because I was like gung-ho, full send, ready to go into the coaching world. And I talked to these graduate assistants and I was like, uh, maybe not so much. So yeah. then I was kind of like, man, I have no clue what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll go be a, a trainer at Gold's Gym or. <laughs> and for context, what years were you at BYU at undergrad? I played there 2009 to 2012. So it was the, the okay. last time until this most recent time that they beat the University of Utah. I was Max Hall senior year, overtime <laughs> win, touchdown pass to Andrew George, just Beautiful split the the two defenders scored a touchdown. You know that I'm a Utah football fan, right? Oh my goodness! Well, like die hard, bleed red. I have a degree from BYU, but we kind of don't usually talk about it because I'm such a big Utah fan. But I think we can still be friends. It's fine. I I, I did not know that, but then you got to have about ten years of uh, rubbing it in our faces. We've so. had some good years. We have. I'll say that anyway. Uh, Unfortunately, I was a part of three of those good years for you guys that weren't so good years for us. So yeah, 2009, 2012, I started off as a tight end behind uh, Dennis Pitta, who was a stud All-American at the time, and also Andrew George, who was also a stud. And then about halfway through my redshirt freshman year, the offensive coordinator, Robert and I came up to me and said, hey, we're, we're kind of limited on numbers on the offensive line. Do you want to do some cross training at tackle? And I said, sure, why not? Ended up starting three games at right tackle. I was like 255 pounds, probably had no business being a tackle. but uh, And I actually had a welcome to college football moment in that Utah game 
lining up against Koamisi, who ended up being a second round draft pick and had played several years in the NFL. But the clips online, you can probably link it in the bio. I've, I've come to terms yeah. with it. It used to be really embarrassing, but now it's like we all know how that game turned out. So it's it's all good. Ended up not going the coaching route. And it was actually my wife who said, well, have you ever thought about being a therapist? And in my mind, the first thing I thought was, you know, what are people going to think of me going from being like this big macho man, offensive tackle? Because at the time I was like 315 pounds, I'm six foot six. So, you know, not a small guy. Yeah. You know, being this big macho man persona to then talking about feelings and emotions. And so there was kind of this stigma in my mind, but then I reflected on my own experience in high school, working with a therapist, and then my my experience at BYU working with a mental health professional. And, and I thought, it's actually kind of a, a cool way to be a coach, but just in a, a different arena. So long story short, I went up to Utah State, bypassed the University of Utah, went up to Logan, <laughs> and uh, got my master's in marriage and family therapy, and then drove my wife and our 18-year-old twins across the country to East Carolina University to get my PhD in medical family therapy. And then that took us to Indiana for about five years, where I worked as a behavioral science faculty member at a family medicine residency. And then also during that time, I was the director of clinical mental performance and mental health services for the IUPUI athletics department. Hmm. And then ultimately ended up back here. We can talk more about that a little bit later, but now I work for a company called Ampelis. I think you're familiar with Ampelis. A little bit. I think Lizzie Jensen is involved in that, right? Yeah. So it's her dad, Lon, is the CEO of Ampelis and then her brother-in-law, Robbie Harmon, is the president. So I think that she's kind of been involved in varying degrees over the years, but... Yeah. Lizzie is a dear friend of mine, so that's why I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Lizzie, she's, I've gotten to know her a little bit just recently. We went to a conference together in Boston and just a phenomenal individual, really wonderful person. Yeah. So we're Utah, kind of a startup company. We do mental human performance for mostly athletes, but also business executives, families. And we have a couple of TMS health clinics throughout the state of Utah where we do mental health specific type stuff and medication management. So been a lot of fun. And most recently, it went public about a week ago. We signed a big contract with uh, BYU Athletics. So, oh, congratulations. Have, Very thank you. Cool. So, it's it, I, I am so grateful and so fired up to be back here working in this capacity, working mostly with the football team and then also gymnastics, women's basketball, and now swimming and diving, kind of doing mostly mental performance stuff, but also some clinical mental health stuff when it calls for it. So, that is so cool. That's awesome. Let's talk about when you were a college, you, I mean, you brushed on this a tiny bit, but when you were in college, when you were an athlete, this was not the path that you envisioned for yourself. Is that right? Not at all. So what were you hoping to do after college, after your BYU days were done? So I thought like full transparency, I went to BYU with one thing on my mind and that was playing in the NFL. Yeah. It's actually interesting because after my career was over, I reflected back on that time frame when I was at BYU. And I actually had a lot of guilt because I feel like I took for granted that opportunity to have a full ride scholarship, get my education paid for by an amazing university mm-hmm. because I was just so focused on NFL, NFL, NFL. And the, the ironic thing is, is I actually did get the opportunity. So after my senior year, I got an invite to the NFL combine, which was just That was probably the most awesome experience of my post-BYU career was going to the NFL Combine and just 
soaking in that experience and those three days of just it was it was intense it was a lot it was jam-packed with meetings and drug tests and physical tests and the kind of the very last day after they poke and prod you and treat you like cattle you have to do all the all the physical testing and all the stuff that they actually pay attention to so that was a pretty cool experience and i ended up getting picked up as an undrafted free agent by the st louis rams so cool you have an Instagram post that talks about how you said I had no business being there. Tell me about that. That was more so just physically, I was kind of a train wreck. So I, yeah. my mentality when I was playing at BYU was unless I have to come off the field on a stretcher, like there's no way I'm coming <laughs> out of the game. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize till after the fact that that put my, my wife and my mom and my mother-in-law and all my family members through a lot of kind of emotional turmoil because they could see that I struggled pretty significantly. So I had a, I had a jacked up back pretty much my whole BYU career. I had two herniated mm-hmm. discs and Ooh. I tried playing through it. I did all the epidural shots and all the other yeah. non-surgical treatments, but there were still games where it's like, we're on the goal line and I'm an offensive lineman and I can't put my hand in the dirt because my, if I put my hand down, like I'm going to collapse and fall on my face because my back was so jacked up. Wow. And then I had a torn labrum where during the week, I can't even reach out to close my car door or go through the drive through and reach with my left hand. I had to reach over to, to grab it with my right hand. And then, wow. you know, during the game, my arms are all over the place and wrestling these big 300 pound guys. But it was just kind of that mentality of it's like, I have this opportunity. I you don't want to, I don't want to let it go and go past yeah. me because I might not ever get it back. So but you live and you learn hindsight's always 2020. And there's part of me that wishes I would have allowed myself to get healthy so that I could have had a better shot at the NFL. But the reality is I went to the combine and they're sitting there asking. So they go through your entire medical history. They look at all of the the imaging, all of the tests, all of the documented injuries that you had mm-hmm. as a, a, a collegiate athlete. And so they're asking me about my back. They're asking me about my shoulder. I had a hip flexor injury. I had uh, surgery on both my ankles. And they're asking me about all these injuries. You really were a mess, weren't you? I was a mess. It <laughs> was it was bad. Shay. I was like the the tin man. You had to oil up all my parts just so I could move properly. But yeah. I'm sitting there answering this, these questions. And like, my back is just like throbbing, shooting, stabbing pains. They're like, so how's your, any issues with your back now? And I'm like, nope, <laughs> it's great. But again, it's like, I think 300 people get invited to the NFL combine every year. So it's like, there's no way that I'm not going to go out there and participate and just take some Advil and and suck it up because you never get that opportunity again. So yeah. On your Instagram profile though, it says NFL reject. So what happened after that? I I honestly don't know why I put that. Maybe that's just. No, it's interesting. It's like, Oh, that's, that is really interesting that like you said, you're, a therapist, PhD in psychology, and yet connecting those dots, there's definitely, you go, oh, there's a story here. So. Yeah. So, so I go to St. Louis, I'm still kind of a mess physically. I make it through all of the OTAs, all of the mini camps. And then a week before training camp, there was a linebacker who blitz and I stepped down to hit him and we collided and my back just went completely numb and like shooting pain down both my legs into my feet. And it got to the point where like, I couldn't put my own cleats on. I couldn't tie my shoes. And I'm like, in in the NFL, you can't fake it through that kind of stuff, right? It's it's the best of the best, the most talented people in the world at that sport. And it's like, you can't try to fake it through an injury like that because backs are so debilitating. So I think I had like 
seven total epidural shots. And they're like, look, dude, we can't keep giving you shots. You're not responding to them. So the next option is surgery. So perks of being an NFL athlete, they, they fly you out to get surgery from the best of the best. And it was, it was funny because I got like a, a fake name for my surgery because they try to protect the identity of athletes. And I'm like, mm-hmm. dude, I'm an undrafted offensive tackle from BYU. Like no one's going to have a clue who I am. Right. So yeah. I get the surgery. The surgeon says, hey, look, people come back and play after this surgery all the time, but it's just a matter of quality of life. So the longer you continue to wear and tear and do what you do for a profession with how big you are, just the more debilitated you're going to be earlier on in life. And my wife and I were trying to have a family at the time. We were struggling to get pregnant. And I was just, I was a mess physically, emotionally, mentally. So at that point in time, I'm like, I'm just, I'm ready to be done. That's going back to what I was saying earlier. The the ironic part was like my whole life from the time I was probably 10, it was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? NFL football player. And then I finally get the chance and I'm there. And it's like, man, this sucks. Like I am struggling. This is rough. This is not how I envisioned it. And like I just I need to be done with it. But on the other side, I am glad that I had the opportunity because it's one of those things where if I didn't get that opportunity, I probably would have wondered my whole life, like, what if? Could I have done it? So it's just a lot of mixed emotions and interesting feelings. So I don't know. I was on injured reserve. I did get one credited NFL season because how it works is if you get injured, then you're on the team for the amount of weeks it would take for you to recover from that injury. So I never actually played a season, but I have a credited NFL season. So it's just one of those things where I even hesitate to say like played in the NFL because I was in the NFL, but I never actually really played in any game. So it was just kind of an interesting situation, but. But a great learning experience and a really cool thing to be able to draw upon for your current career, I would imagine, especially if you're going to be working with athletes. Absolutely. And that's the thing is it's like, it's not to say that you have to be a former athlete to be able to relate to athletes, but I do think it's kind of one of those things where as a parent, like there are a lot of amazing parent experts out there that don't have children and they know all the research and they know all the tricks, but there's a difference between like, okay, what the book says and what the research says and all of these different things and the practical reality of being a parent. And it's kind of one of those things where unless you're a parent yourself, it's hard to have that same kind of level of understanding. So, but to your point, I do think it helps me relate to and connect to these athletes that I'm working with on a, on a different level. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you mentioned earlier something about stigma and mental health, and I'd love to talk about that for a minute, and especially when it relates to people who are very forward-facing, whether that's athletics or any type of performance, I would imagine, where people kind of feel like they have to put on a face all the time that everything's fine. That is such a good statement. And that's so prevalent in the world of athletics. And I've done a lot of my research. So during my PhD, that's what I did my research on was mental health, like amongst NCAA student athletes, and just kind of looking at their views towards it and stigmas and attitudes and whatever else. But especially, and I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but it is pretty clear in the research that especially among male student athletes, the stigma related to mental health and this idea of if I'm struggling or if I reach out to help, even if I'm not struggling, if, even if I just want to better myself, that makes me soft or it makes me weak or it makes me mm. not good enough. 
But then when you actually sit down with some of these people, especially the male student athletes, and you really kind of break down those barriers, you realize like at the end of the day, we're all just human beings, right? And some of us are human beings that are really good at a particular sport, right? And have those physical gifts and abilities that they've worked on and, and developed over the years. But when you kind of take off all that armor and the helmet and the superhero version of that person away, mm-hmm. it's like you realize they're a person that has fears and doubts and feelings and emotions and just like anyone else, right? Just like anyone down the street who isn't an athlete. But it's so hard for people to realize that because in the world of athletics, it's almost like you're expected to be that superhero all the time. You got to be that tough guy. You got to show no emotion. You got to just grit through it and persevere. And those are all great traits, right? But it's like not to the point where now we're neglecting the human side of us and that emotional side. And Yeah. Well, I really loved what you said on Instagram recently where you said mental health is health. And you also shared a statistic about athletes and how 100% of the time they're required to get help for physical health. But then the the statistic you shared was super low as far as I think it was maybe 10% of athletes that actually seek help for mental health. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's what the research says. Of the people who are struggling with clinically significant mental health issues, only about 10% reach out for help. And that would be a lot lower if it didn't include both male and female student athletes. Mm. So to your point, it's interesting, right? Because when we meet with these athletes as teams, that's usually the first question that we ask them is if you had to put a number on it, a percentage, what percentage would you say of your sport would you say is mental? And it's usually anywhere from like 60% to 90%. Even some people say 100%, right? Mm. So it's like we, we all recognize that it's such a huge part of sports And even the athletes themselves recognize it. But then you start to ask them, okay, so how much of your weekly time are you actually devoting specifically to nurturing that mental side of your sport, right? Because we spend so many hours in the weight room, on the field, in the Mm -hmm. film room, but it's like, what are we actually doing on a weekly basis to cultivate and develop that mental side that we all recognize is so important? Yeah. And it's just, it's fascinating, right? Totally. So if I am a student athlete at BYU, or maybe not me, because you're talking about how even it's even less common with men. So a guy comes in who's playing for BYU football and has some mental health struggles. Where do you start? Like, what's the first thing that you work with people on? Well, first off, I thank them for having the courage to make the appointment, right? Like, thank you for being willing to step into this space because that is the first step. And that is a huge first step for a lot of these guys, mm-hmm. right? Especially guys that have deep rooted, whether it's based on cultural views or religious views or familial views about mental health and what it means, what it doesn't mean to yep. take that leap and to say, Hey, like, and sometimes they don't even know what it is. Like, I don't know what it is, but I just know that something's off. And like, I just, I know that I, I can't do it alone. So first and foremost, I, I thank them. Thank you for stepping into the space, letting me be a small part of this journey. And then it's kind of like assessing, okay, so what was it that ultimately led you to reach out? What was it that you thought, okay, maybe this, he could help me with in this specific area. And then you kind of start to just peel back those layers a little bit and figure out. And as they talk and as you listen, you figure out, man, there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot going on and just helping and normalizing, helping them realize like, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like 
you have so much on your plate and so much pressure, and especially nowadays. Like I think about when I was playing, Instagram wasn't even really a thing, and neither was Twitter. Like that was just the be- the beginning of it, right? Yeah, I can't even imagine trying to exist in a world where all of that is so central to everybody's everyone's opinions are out there, and you there's so much transparency with who's doing what and who thinks what of whom. So yeah, I can't even imagine. All, all the keyboard warriors, you just get to say and, and mm-hmm. do whatever they want, right? Like I was sitting with an athlete the other day and he was talking about one game last year. He had one bad play. And after that game, probably had 50 different messages from just random people saying, I mean, it, it got to the point where it was even as bad as like, kill yourself, right? Because he had one bad play. Wow. And it's like, I think that, you try not to let those things affect you. But when you see those things and you have so much of your performance tied to your worth, and Mm. that's something that athletes struggle with in general, as it is, is like my worth is dependent on my performance. And well, there's a literal score. There's a score tied to your, and all these stats that you can look up in an instant online about any athlete, like, well, what are they worth? What's their batting average or whatever related to their position that they're playing in it's and, a rough world yeah because it's, it's it's one of those things where it's like it's hard not to because that's the world you live in but and back to your other point in answering that's typically how i end a first session with any athlete that i work with is whether you come back and see me again or not i want you to remember at least this one thing that you are blank the football player or blank the the gymnast you are not Mm. the gymnast blank or the football player blank Mm. right like yeah yeah you're a football player and you're a really good football player and we expect you to be a good football player but you're also a son you're also a brother you're also a husband you're also a boyfriend you're also a friend you're a student you have all these other interests right and helping remind them that like of course a big part of their identity is going to be attached to being a football player but it has to be viewed as being a part of something bigger. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you're saying this because I was teaching the same thing to the teenage girls in my church congregation yesterday when I was teaching a lesson on this same idea. But I feel like when I was their age and even up until like somewhat recently in the last like five to 10 years, a lot of those messages from well-meaning adults went in one ear and out the other. Mm -hmm. Like doesn't really sink in. So where do you think people's daily habits or their mindset or like what is it that makes a person hear that versus believe it that's such a great point i actually usually preface it with if full transparency 10 years ago if i had someone sitting here telling me the same thing i'd probably just roll my eyes maybe or think like okay yeah you're supposed to say something like that Mm -hmm. so there is that part of it where it's like you you just don't know what you don't know and with with age and experience comes more wisdom and deeper understanding about these specific things, but it's helping them realize like it, we don't need to wait until you're 10 years down the road to have this realization. And we just realize that you, you might have like five years down the road or 10 years down the road, you're going to look back at this period of life and this time that you're in right now, and you're going to have all sorts of thoughts, feelings, emotions about it. Right. So can we take that mm-hmm. proactive approach and say, what do I want to do? What do I want to be about? And what actions can I? do on a consistent basis that's going to align with that vision of myself that I have? And can I commit to being disciplined to those? 
so that whatever comes throughout the season, the highs, the lows, the injuries, the losses, like I can anchor myself on these specific things that are tied to a certain vision and certain values and certain goals that are meaningful to me as a person. Yeah, that's really good. Are there things that you have people do consistently? Are there like, are you like a meditation or an affirmation kind of a person? Like, what do you consistently have your patients do that you see a lot of success with? So I think one thing that is pretty common with a lot of athletes, because there's so much pressure and there's so much stress and there's so much anxiety and that stuff is all outside of what's happening right now, usually. Mm-hmm. So helping them get back to just being present, focusing mm-hmm. on what can you do right now? What's most important right now? And trying to eliminate those distractions. And that's one of the conversations that I have. And I, I kind of use this as an example. And I'll do this with you right now is it's like, you think about all the things in your environment right now that you could be focused on or that you could be distracted by. You have an impressive lineup of shoes behind you, right? All the shoes. Yes. And I got all these color coordinated books behind me. People think that that's my doing. Absolutely not my doing. That is my wife. 100%. If it was up to me, they'd be like some horizontal, some stack, some angled, whatever else. It looks awesome. But there's lights, there's windows, there's all sorts of things that we can be focused on or distracted by. But right now we're kind of pretty dialed into listening to each other and being focused on each other. Now, every once in a while, we might get distracted by a car that drives by or my kid who's screaming in the background, even though I told them I'm on a really important phone call, right? (laughs) But it's that ability and that practice of just noticing without judgment. Oh, I noticed my mind's here and I'm going to redirect it back to what's most important to me right now, which is listening to your questions and being mindful and thoughtful about what I'm trying to say. That's such a challenge for me and everybody else, I feel like. Yeah. In this day and age, especially I think about my kids and how they're so conditioned to not be bored. And we don't give them like screens to look at in our car unless we're on a road trip. But I've even noticed that they do, and I never did this as a kid, but they bring books into the car to read because they don't want to be bored because they're so used to having something. And they don't even, like I said, it's not even like a social media or screen thing. But I just think like more and more our world has become that way where it's like always have something to distract you or entertain you. 100%. My daughter, she's almost nine. She came up, she's one of the twins. She came up to me about a week ago. She's like, daddy, I'm bored. And I said, that's awesome. What would you like me to do about it? And she kind of sat there and she's like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I don't know either. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like, big gulps, huh? Well, see you later. And she just kind of went off and I think she found a book or found something else to do. But I think there is something to what you're saying is like, we have phones and computers and notifications galore. And so it's just this idea of I can just never be still, never be present or thinking that's a bad thing. That if I just have nothing going on, that that's, there's something wrong, but there's actually a lot of, a lot of great things can happen in that space where there's not all of those distractions going on. You actually be with your thoughts and be with your yourself in those moments. So, yeah, I'm sure that that would have been helpful to me as a student in college, just to realize more of that being present and, and being grateful. Like you mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast, where you talked about looking back and regretting not fully being present in your education. That's a regret that I have too, where I look back and I'm like, my focus 
was jumping through hoops and getting out of BYU as fast as possible. Because that's just mentally where I was at. was like, how can I get the credits? How do I check the boxes? And this teacher needs me to do this, that, and the other. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I don't think any of my time at BYU, I was just focused on, I am learning to make myself smarter and put something in my brain of worth. Like that's embarrassing to say, but it is, it's the truth. It's honesty of where I was at, what, what my motivations were was like, okay, I'm here to get a degree. Like, how do we get it done? Yeah. And with, I think a lot of wisdom, I have a good friend who is, she's going back to school and she's like, I love it that I just sit there and learn and I just soak things in and I don't really care about my grades. I'm just there to get smarter. And I'm like, wow, what a, what an idea. Yeah, I I, uh, I give my wife a hard time because she like loves school, like loves learning. And I am very opposite. So I have ADHD. You can probably tell I move all over the place and can't sit still. But like school has always been such a challenge for me to the point mm-hmm. where my younger brother, after I graduated my PhD program, he's like, dude, no offense, but of anybody in our family who I would have ever expected to get a PhD, you are the last person in our family. And I'm like, Nice. No offense taken because I am just, I, I'm with you. Like I, this is the last thing I thought I would ever be able to do. But I mean, kind of to your point, that's one of the things as a company that, that we do. And that's kind of our approach is trying to help instill these daily practices. We call them meaningful intentions. Mm-hmm. There, there's a difference between waking up and just going throughout the motions of the day versus waking up and saying, this is what I specifically want to focus on today. And it can just be one small thing, right? Yeah. And we do it as a company. We check in with each other every day. And we have this app that we use with the athletes. And we kind of get them into that same practice where it's just asking them every single day when they wake up, what is it specifically that you want to be more intentional about today? Okay. So then it kind of gives them a little roadmap of if anything else today, I, I know that I at least have this focus that I can come back to. Yeah. And then the same thing with the gratitude practice, right? Because there's all sorts of research that shows that if you have a gratitude practice, you're going to be healthier and happier physically, mentally, emotionally, and good things happen. So just kind of getting into that routine. And I always preface it, right? Because some people, they roll their eyes and maybe not get offended, but just like, okay, yeah, be grateful, be grateful. And it's not saying that you're not allowed to have hard moments or hard times throughout your day or pretend like bad things aren't existing in your life. It's despite these frustrating and challenging moments and hardships that I'm going through, I'm also choosing to think of things that I'm grateful for. So it's a both and thing, not an either or thing. So, cause sometimes mm-hmm. people get into this mindset of either everything's hard and sucky and world's coming to an end, or it's like just happy, go lucky, hunky dory, positive vibes only. But I think there's space and it's important to allow both of those to exist at the same time. I totally agree. And I think that's where we get this term that I kind of feel like is a little bit bogus of toxic positivity, mm-hmm. where I don't think positivity is ever toxic. I just think, like you're saying, you maybe don't stuff or ignore your emotions in order to be positive. It doesn't require you to be an all or nothing scenario. So right. I really want to ask you about, you talked about, you had this great quote the other day about Kobe Bryant talking about his emotions. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Can you talk more about that and and regulating your emotions and what you teach people about that? And I don't know when this is learned, but at some point in time in our life, we're learned that there's like 
good emotions and bad emotions. And mm-hmm. like anger is a bad emotion or sadness is a bad emotion. Fear is a bad emotion. But to Kobe's point where he says, I just try to be still. Things come and go. Emotions come and go. And I embrace all emotions, right? So I love that because it's this idea of normalizing that like we're human beings. We're going to experience all emotions. Mm-hmm. And we got to get out of this mindset of labeling them as good or bad and just recognizing that they're just signals. This is just a signal to my body, to my brain that something important is happening in my life. And then it's deciding what you want to do with that emotion, right? And where people get yeah. in trouble is when they choose to attach so strongly to that emotion or to a thought that now they they drown in it and they can't mm. get out of it versus acknowledging that it's there accepting that it's there and then deciding, okay, so what do I want to do with this emotion? Can I bring this emotion along with me in the driver's seat or am I going to let it drive me all around town like a crazy person and dictate what I do or don't do? Mm. It's kind of helping people recognize that you don't get to choose what emotions or what thoughts or what feelings you experience throughout the day, but you do have a choice. You do have a say in how you respond to those different emotions. And it's a lot easier said than done. That was going to be my next question. Like, what if I'm your client or your, sorry, your patient? And I'm like, well, that sounds nice, but how? (laughs) Yeah, that's seriously one of the things I say more than anything else in my sessions is literally 95% of the stuff I'm going to talk about, I know sounds easier said than done. Mm -hmm. But then I also remind them, well, you know, so is waking up at six in the morning and going and lifting for two hours and then going to class for six hours then watching film then coming home and having to study like, that ain't easy. And you found a way to do that too. So it's like, you know, Justin Sua, he's, he's a former BYU baseball player and now he's in the mental performance space, but he, he has a saying where it's like, difficult is not bad. Difficult doesn't mean you can't do it. Difficult is just difficult and you can do difficult things. Mm. So it's helping people, reminding people that yes, this is easier said than done. And it takes practice, deliberate practice, just like anything else, right? Like you don't get stronger by not going and lifting weights. You don't get better at throwing post routes by not throwing post routes. You get better by going out deliberately and practice, practicing those things. And it's the same thing with learning how to relate differently to our, our different emotions and different feelings and thoughts. Yeah. So with the emotions, going back to that, and if you're trying to teach somebody to not just, because I, I know I've struggled with this throughout my life where I'll have a negative thought come into my mind and I'll just like sit on it and stew on it. And sometimes even when it goes away, then I'll try to remember it because it's like somehow cathartic or like I think that I'm being productive by like milking that. I I don't even know the right term for it, but there's some like weird twisted thing in my mind that tells me like, oh yeah, I need to keep processing that to death. Mm-hmm. if that's something that someone is doing, what's like the action item that you tell them to do instead? So my first question would be, so how is staying so attached to this emotion helping you be who you want to be? It's not. Right. So it's like, yeah. can we just let it, and it's, it's this technique of noticing first, because you first have to notice that it's there in order to do anything about it, right? You can't change mm-hmm. things that you're not aware of. So being being aware of it, noticing it without judgment, without labeling it as good or bad. Mm-hmm. I notice that I'm having this feeling or this thought. And just that in and of itself allows you to separate you from emotion. So now it's not this emotion is me. It's this emotion is a part of me or this thought is a part of me. 
but it's not all of me, all consuming. And sometimes for people, just having that experience is very freeing because it's like mm-hmm. I, now I realize going back to what Kobe said, things come and go, emotions come and go. No one has ever had a feeling or an emotion that lasts 24 7, 365. Right. Yeah. It's like sometimes it feels like it's going to be that way. And sometimes it feels like it's never going to end. But the reality is, is that it's like a wave, right? Yeah. Crashes and then it kind of goes back and it just, it it comes and goes. So noticing and then this idea of defusing from that thought or that feeling or the, the emotion. And these are all acceptance and commitment therapy techniques and practices. And I can give you some book recommendations to look into, but that's kind of like my bread and butter that I go to because I think it's the most practical and sensible approach out there because it's not this, we're getting into a wrestling match with our thoughts and trying to replace some with different thoughts. It's just, we're not trying to change anything. We're just trying to bring awareness to, to noticing what we're feeling and thinking and then letting it sit there and then deciding, okay, can I still do certain actions and behaviors despite this emotion being present. Yeah. Right. Yep. That totally makes sense. And that's really helpful. And yes, whatever your book recommendations are, we'll add them to the show notes at the end. So one last thing I wanted to ask you about is mindset, because I know that's important to you. You talk about it a lot. So how do you help people with their mindset and why, why does it matter? I mean, I think mindset really kind of sets the tone for, everything, right? If I wake up and I have this mindset of, oh, here we go again, just another day to exist or just a crappy day versus waking up and saying, you know, I have an opportunity to to go do something and to be alive and to make a difference in the world like that completely changes the trajectory of your day. What I do with people is I, I love listening to people and hearing kind of their internal dialogue because they usually speak it out loud in in our sessions and they don't really realize what they're saying. And my favorite thing to say is, well, and that's one way to think about it. Well, what might be another way to think about it? Cause sometimes people just need to know that like we have the ability to not take the initial thought or the, the initial narrative that comes into our brain as just cold, hard facts and the truth and nothing but the truth. And there's nothing else to it. Right. It's just, this is just one thought, one perspective, one way to view one experience, but it's not the only way. So I have them practice that. Okay. So when you notice yourself going to that place of, oh, here we go again, or whatever it is, that's not really helpful for you really thinking about, okay, so what would be a different perspective or more helpful perspective that's more in alignment with where I want to be headed and what's important to me as a human being? Yeah, that's really profound. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, last question. If there's one message that you want the people listening to this podcast episode to remember, what do you want that one message to be? Such a great question. And I know that I'm obviously biased because I'm in this space and I I see people struggling with varying degrees and traumas and challenges. But I think the point is, is that just to remember that we're all humans and we all have things that we're struggling with. I think it was Robin Williams who first said, first said the quote of, you know, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Yeah. And that, that goes in alignment. I like to write on whiteboards a lot, but I always draw the kind of the emotion iceberg. So it's like, we see the 
what's above the surface of an iceberg, but we don't realize the majority of the sustenance of the iceberg is beneath the surface, right? So mm-hmm. we see people's actions and behaviors. We see what's on the surface, but we don't see like pain or trauma or hurt or fear or all of these different things that are driving those behaviors and driving those actions. And when you can learn to view it like that, it just helps you be a little bit more compassionate and empathetic and understanding that it has very little to do with you and a lot more with what's going on for them and their, their lives. And for some people, it's pretty, pretty hard and and traumatic stuff. Yeah, that is such a powerful message. And so I really appreciate everything that you've shared here today. It's been so enlightening to just listen to you and go even deeper with the wonderful things that you already share on Instagram. So where can people find you if they want to connect with you or follow along with what you're teaching and and all the good things that you're sharing? Yeah, so my Instagram is Dr. Period B period PhD. And then also my company's website is Ampelis, A-M-P-E-L-I-S.org. So if you want to learn more about what we do as a company or you want to actually look into reaching out for coaching services, you can go to ampelis.org and, and go that way. Or you can send me an email, braden at ampelis.org. I'd be happy to hear from anybody, answer any questions that anyone might have. So yeah, it's probably the best way. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Braden. I really appreciate your time today. No, thank you, Corinne. This is an awesome opportunity and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.